the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I want to start the show talking about some pop culture and something that I told you when we came on off air, when you and I first uh, started talking today, I said, I just saw, did you see this? This just disturbed me so much. And you said it disturbed you to the point you couldn't watch it as yeah. well. It was in Weekend Update, Saturday Night Live. They ran a bizarre um, clown abortion segment uh, that is just going crazy on the Internet. I want to just play the first 30 seconds or so just to give people uh, a, an introduction to it. Aubrey, I don't really want to play much more of it because it really disturbed me a lot. But I want people to hear this and you and I are going to talk about it. The Supreme Court heard arguments this week in Women's Whole Health v. Texas about the controversial Texas law that essentially bans all abortions after just six weeks. Here to cheer us up, well, this can't be right, Goober the Clown, who had an abortion when she was 23. Hey, 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 I'm Goober the Clown. So, Goober, you, you had an abortion when you were 23? Hey, whoa, slow down, I'm a clown, let's clown around. Hey, smell this flower. You're not going to squirt me, are you? Oh, I would never. Okay. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I had an abortion the day before my 23rd birthday. Okay. All right, Aubrey. So it's this girl, Cecily Strong, uh, dressed in a clown outfit, doing this whole thing about abortion. And here's what disturbs me the most about this. Not just that. Uh, Saturday Night Live went to, to this length to kind of lightheartedly talk about abortion. Mm -hmm. But more so than that, the lauding that's happening. I read an article today that said Cecily Strong should win an Emmy for this, that she should win an Emmy for this. Whoa. And another article that said this is the most important social commentary skit mm -mm. that Saturday Night Live has done in years. Mm -mm. And I just couldn't believe it. So it made me happy, Aubrey, on a weird way to hear you say that it disturbed you because I couldn't watch it. So tell me, tell us more about just why this caused you to even turn it off. Yeah, I, I ended up turning it off. And look, I, Saturday Night Live is known for, especially I would say in the last year, they go after evangelicals and they yes. go after the right and they go after Christians pretty hard. And so every once in a while, I'm like, man, this show is so funny. I, I like it because it's a window, I think, into our culture and that can help us build bridges to know what our culture's thinking. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while in my mind, they go way too far. Like That's it's, right. it becomes, um, anti-Christian hate, you know, bigotry, frankly. And this one, I think more than that, what was disturbing to me about it and what felt so evil and twisted about it is I know lots of women anecdotally, personally have walked with them because of ministry stuff who have so much deep, deep, deep pain and heartache because of abortions. That's right. And regret beyond what you could ever imagine. Now, the Lord has been kind and graceful, and they have experienced his presence in it. But I mean, I have talked with women who 30 years later are still grieving that decision. And I think that's what felt so flippant about it. Like, I think there's, if I, people are on one side or the other of this debate, and I understand that. What I don't understand is making light of something that is not a lighthearted issue. Like, if a woman's going to have an abortion, it takes her a lot to get there. If a young girl is having an abortion, it takes her a lot to get there. This is no woman's decision made flippantly, made arrogantly, made easily, or they're fooling themselves. And I think that's maybe what it was. It felt like, um, this is going to sound really extreme, Brian, but you actually said something similar. It felt like the spirit of the age, meaning the demonic spirit of the age, yes. trying to convince the world that killing children, killing babies is really not that big of a deal. Like I would almost rather them say, look, I'm pro-abortion because I'm pro-women and women have choice. 
but at least make at least hold it with the weight that it deserves. This made abortion seem weightless and like nothing. And that to me is incredibly disturbing. And the fact, like you said, that now the whole world is supporting it, going crazy, celebrating it, saying she deserves an enemy. It's just whoo. I mean, this is one of those moments where we are not in line with culture as Christians here. We can't be. Yeah, it's totally the way I I like how you put that at the end there, because we used to live in a political or just our our culture used to live in such a way where it was like you're either anti-abortion or you're you're pro-choice. But but there's a gravity to absolutely your pro-choiceness, if you will. There's a gravity that says even as far back as or as recently as Bill Clinton used to use the terms of we want it as rare as possible. Mm -hmm, Right. But but it's mm -hmm. about safety or accessibility or women, whatever else. It might be to see it now talked about so flippantly. Yeah. It, in this skit, she talks about how she would not be, in her opinion, on Saturday Night Live if she hadn't gotten an abortion. And then what happens in our culture is that Twitter picked this up and there began a hashtag going on this weekend called my abortion story or hashtag my abortion or whatever it was in which women were sharing their stories of I wouldn't have been able to finish law school if I didn't do this. I wouldn't have been able and I was reading these today uh, and I, I was I don't know why I just spent so much, much time reading them, but it just gre- it broke my heart. Yeah. To go, OK, we have now reached the point uh, in this conversation where it is uh, so politicized and such a game right now and so not about the babies or like you said so well, not really about the moms anymore. Right. right. That we can just dress up an actress as a clown and mm. do a skit about uh, why abortions are okay, and she—they're laughing. Oh my gosh! I—I tr- I don't, I don't throw around flippantly, Aubrey, like you just said, kind of the enemy and darkness right, and demonic. Right. This felt demonic to me as I was reading it. And you and I are going to talk later about two articles that were not about this uh, sketch. But we're about abortion from people that we really appreciate. Tish Harrison Warren, I believe you said, but also Russell Moore this weekend to kind of more talk about where how do we think this issue through. But Aubrey, may here, I'll end it here and give me your thought. May we as the church never act as flippantly about abortion there you as go. what Saturday Night Live did this weekend. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Like we have to take this. We have to take this issue seriously and not in a, like you're saying, not in a political way, but in like an actual, like our witnesses on the line here caring for the most vulnerable. That includes the women, but especially those unborn children. And let's never, I, what I don't want is for culture's voice to become so loud that we become desensitized and start yes. making a joke of this. And that's ultimately what happened. That is absolutely what happened. So wanted to start there because Saturday Night Live, whatever you think of it, it still holds uh, a high uh, cultural element for for many people within our society. And, and that was just super disturbing. And it kind of highlighted where we are uh, as a people. Well, coming up next, David Mathis, uh, executive editor for Desiring God. He has written a new book called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. David's going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the executive editor for DesiringGod.org and also a pastor at Cities Church. Uh, Most important for our conversation today, the author of a new book that we're excited about called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. His name is David Mathis. David, how are you doing today? Doing well, Brian. Thanks for uh, having me here with you and Aubrey. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into the book, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from South Carolina, so you may hear that in my voice, even though I've been here in Minnesota since 2003. I met my wife, Megan, here in Minnesota. Uh, We have four kids. Uh, We're kind of a baseball family. My uh, 11-year-old twin boys love playing baseball. Mm. And uh, we we love the state of Minnesota. My wife is from here. We, I just got back actually from deer hunting this weekend, <laughs> and uh, and 
Speaking of the topic, that was a humbling thing. I, <laughs> I did not get a deer this weekend. Oh, sad. Did some good reading time in the great outdoors. Oh, how fun. Uh, Brian, I, I know it's my turn to ask a question, but I just have to honor the fact that this is a baseball family and you're a baseball family. So I feel like there's a connection here. So, David, if Aubrey was not here, that would be the rest of the time we'd spend here. <laughs> there we go. But sorry, sorry son, guys. <laughs> I have a baseball-obsessed son, but I'm also a bit obsessed. So another day we'll have you back on, David. I'll kind of turn Aubrey off, and uh, we'll talk baseball another day. So well, what, One very practical thing related to our topic is what a humbling sport baseball can uh, be yes, for uh, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids. Because in baseball, there are strikeouts, mm-hmm. and there yes. are errors, mm-hmm. and that is just you. That is not not your team that gave up gave up the goal that is you mm-hmm. and so dealing with failure is a very important that's one of the reasons that we uh, make much of baseball in our families we're trying to develop our sons their maturity their composure and learn how to deal with failure on the that's baseball good. field. Oh, that's awesome, David. Well, again, the title of your book is Humbled, and that was actually a fantastic segue. I feel like humility is something that we talk about a lot. We read Philippians 2. We we want to be humble, but maybe we don't actually have a great definition for humility. Can you define it for us? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. And uh, one help in this is the great American philosopher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, Hmm. who talked about humility as a creaturely virtue. And in the book, I try to to draw that out of biblical texts, go to the first mention of humbling oneself, of humility, which occurs in the Exodus story, as Moses stands before Pharaoh and introduces to Pharaoh the God named Yahweh, the God who is. And Pharaoh purports to be God. And there's this power encounter between the real God and the fake God, namely Pharaoh. And one of the questions comes in chapter 9, chapter 10, Pharaoh, will will you humble yourself before me? And so what's demonstrated there is God is God. He's the creator. Pharaoh, even as great as he is as a human king, probably the, the most powerful human in the world at the time, but he is a creature. And so he must embrace humility before God. He must embrace this creaturely virtue of owning his own lowliness before God, owning God's highness. And so in one sense, what what humility does is profess before God, you are God and I am not. Mm. And I'm okay with that. And I'm going to embrace that. And I'm going to feel the joy and freedom that can come with limiting in me those false desires to be like God. The very thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. Uh, I want to embrace my humility and own you are God and I'm not. Yeah, that's great, David. And when thinking about humility, uh, let me ask the question this way. Are there um, proactive things we can do to humble ourselves or is humility only a fruit of things that happen to us? Yeah, Brian, great question. And that that's really at the heart of the book and, and I, at, at the heart of how I was humbled in pursuing this study. Hmm. So I, I love reading my Bible in the morning. It is over the years I have made a habit of uh, you know, stumbling out of bed, get the coffee going, open the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> I want yeah. God's voice to be the first voice I hear. And I want his voice to be the voice I hear most deeply so that it would shape my day, shape my life. And as a Bible reader, I came across this phrase over and over again over the years, he humbled himself. They humbled themselves. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And so eventually I thought, I need to need to figure out what's going on here because I want to be humble, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The, the Bible tells us to seek humility and to pursue humility, to be, clothe yourselves with humility in Colossians 3. And so it's a good Christian desire that we would want to seek humility, pursue humility. But this is where... Uh, our American instincts can get in the way. We can think, oh, I, I want to do this, so I'll, I'll pursue it when I'm good and ready. I'll do it in my timing. I'll proceed through the various steps. And as I looked at what the Bible had to say about the path to humility, it was very humbling to see mm. it, it's not in your court, mm. creature. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't do it on your time frame. God does the decisive work in humbling. First, He moves. He takes the initiative. He humbles his creatures. And then the question comes biblically. You see this played out again and again throughout the text, especially 2 Chronicles. Then the question comes, now he's humbled you. 
quite apart from your timing or initiative. Now, will you receive his uncomfortable work? In other words, will you humble yourself? Mm. So that is the, that's the first and foremost lesson, I think, in what the Bible has to say about our humbling ourselves. And then, surprisingly, there is another lesson on the other side, which even though we cannot humble ourselves, we're not the ones that begin the process in our initiative and in our timing. God has given us various habits to pursue, various patterns that we can put in our lives to prepare our souls for when those humbling moments come hmm. so that we respond with, with various forms of, of growing humility. Oh, and those, and very, to simplify it very quickly, would be how we hear God's voice on a daily and weekly basis in, in our personal time in God's word, in conversation with Christians, in sitting faithfully under faithful preaching, mm. how we hear his word shapes us for humility, how we respond to him in prayer, how we avail ourselves of his ear to uh, personally, corporately uh, prepares us for humility. And then third, and maybe one of the most humbling aspects of any of our lives is what it means to be committed to a local body of Christians in a local church. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most humbling things you will ever do so to commit to a flawed people with their sins and their warts and your own and see how God means to humble you and prepare you for humility through the local church. Mm, That's so good, David. And I wasn't actually going to ask you this, but that statement just made me think of something Brian and I talk a lot about. We're kind of constantly charging our listeners to get back to church because we need to be an embodied people together. And and I wonder if um, you have any thoughts about that briefly. I know that's not really the heart of your book, but say more about that related to humility. Well, there is something to say very much related to humility and humbling ourselves. And in the title, uh, I use that word uncomfortable, uh, embracing God's uncomfortable work. Uh, It is so comfortable to sit down at our computer with our beautiful high definition screens and nobody can make us do anything. Like there's there's no discomfort. You can click when you want to click. You type when you want to type. You keep the whole world at arm's length. And you have the semblance of control. Mm. But when you walk in to a face-to-face analog gathering, now, and, and this is true with a one-on-one coffee date or a one-on-one lunch appointment, and all the more when you walk into a room <laughs> of dozens or hundreds of people, you give up a kind of control because who's going to because people can see you they can see your eyes your body they hear your words you can't take it back you can't type something and then delete it and then type something else uh and then and they can ask you questions how are you doing and they can see your responses to those questions mm. so it is a, it's a there is a designed discomfort yeah in analog face to face relationships that God has put there and he means that for our good. And some of our resistance in getting back to normal life coming out of COVID is we anticipate that discomfort. Yeah. But that's exactly what God has for us mm-hmm. in this moment. Yeah. So I would say embrace that humbling discomfort and be where God's called you to be among the people of God. That's good. David Mathis, executive director for DesiringGod.org, author of a new book called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. Uh, David, glad that you're staying with us. As we talk about humility, uh, Aubrey and I and yourself, we are all parents and we, we want our kids to be humble, right? We want to grow them in humility. At the same time, you know, we live in a culture in which kind of one of the goals is, uh, you know, give our kids as, as high a self-esteem as possible. Like you're important. You're special. Uh, you deserve the trophies, whatever else it might be. I'm just curious how you as a parent kind of hold those intention. What what do you do as a parent uh, to kind of grow your own children in humility? Brian, that is a, it's a fantastic question. And, and you're right. There is a tension to hold here because the Bible is very clear. It doesn't use the word special, but, but that there's a kind of specialness that we have as humans made in God's image. Humans are special related to the animals. And even this, special related to the angels. Angels long to look into what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God himself became man. He didn't become an angel to save angels. He became man to rescue sinful humans. And so angels look into the specialness of what it means to be in God's image and what it means to be redeemed, that Jesus himself became one of us. 
And there is, I think there's an appropriate specialness for a mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what can we say? Grandparents (laughs) (laughs) to talk to kids about. And to say, I I can't help but say to my four and a half year old daughter, her name's Mercy. Mercy, you are special to your daddy. Mm. And so as much as there's an aspect of the message of specialness that I want to resist, I want to find the biblical place and the warmth of a father's heart to be able to say that. And what I'm not saying to my daughter in that moment, I'm not emphasizing her specialness over and against her peers, Mm. over and against others. I'm not saying that you're special in your class. You're the greatest in your class. (laughs) You're the, you're the, you're the most special little girl in our church. There's a, uh, I, I think that's it's, it's a key thing. <laughs> One way we help keep we help give our kids a realistic vision of the world uh, into which they see the ways in which they're special and they're not is by reading to them as parents. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, the Bible, but then also other great books and literature that aren't just content for them to understand the world right if it's a good book. But also at the same time, that's a medium for relationships. So mm. we can speak in to various moments. And here's an example. Last year, when, when COVID fell, <laughs> I, uh, I started the, the great one million word trek with my boys, reading them aloud, the Harry Potter series. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if at age 10 they were ready for it. Yeah. I, didn't, right. I didn't know. Yeah. And so the lazy thing would have been, been to just turn them loose on it or to tell them no. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, the thing that's really going to be costly is I'll go through them, go through it with them every word. Wow. (laughs) And so so over the course of 18 months, (laughs) we read aloud. I read aloud to them every word in the seven books. And there's one very memorable moment when Dumbledore is telling Harry Potter about the first time that that Dumbledore met Tom Riddle. Mm. Tom Riddle is the little boy who, spoiler here, becomes the the great (laughs) Lord Voldemort. Right. And, uh, in that moment, Dumbledore tells a story of, you know, he, he tells Tom Riddle that he has this, this ability of magic and that Tom Riddle looked at his fingers and he whispered to them, I knew I was special. Mm. And then Dumbledore's comment to Harry is that, that Tom Riddle was all too willing to consider himself, in his words, special. Mm. And boy, there's so much you could say there about Tom Riddle not having a father and not feeling special in the right ways he should have felt special. Mm. But quite apart from that, let's just push that to the side, that he would see himself as special over and against other humans, that he would he would leverage that not special as a creature of God, not special as redeemed in Christ, not special to a particular parent or grandparent, but special over and against others. That is a, is a great danger for pride, and that's the, precisely the place where we want to culcate, in, uh, cultivate and inculcate humility in our children. So there's one little vignette yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to build humility into our sons, other than having them strike out and make errors in baseball games. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I feel like every pastor listening is about to use that in their sermon. This is a fantastic <laughs> anecdote. David, let me, let me ask you a personal question if you don't mind going there. But I, I'm, I'm certain that a lot of uh, authors' writing comes from their own struggles. And I just wonder, is there a personal story that you share in the book of maybe your own humbling or something God did in your life to show you, teach you, convict you of humility? It is. A, it's a very short book. Uh, there aren't explicit personal stories, but maybe the the biggest anchor is the first two words in the book. <laughs> I dedicated this book to Megan, <laughs> my wife. And, uh, it, it, marriage is amazingly humbling, and I have all sorts of stories from my life of growing up and critical moments in college where I realized that the depth and extent of my my own pride and and seeking humility. I, there's I, I, there's various times in my life where painful breakups or relational situations that were were very humbling and you know, feeling that that rejection. But even within this context of, of embrace and covenant, um, in marriage, that person sees you all the time. Like you, you, there's, 
over time, you can't hide anything. Like, right, right. <laughs> right. It, it, becomes, it, it becomes revealed. Like this person knows me better than anyone else. And that is both deeply encouraging and strengthening. And also it's humbling. Right. And it, it's humbling in some very good ways. It, yes, painful, un- uncomfortable for sure, but also humbling in the ways that we need to learn in our souls under God, in Christ, to embrace with a kind of joy. Yeah. There, there's a kind of pleasing pain in being humbled by a wife's observation yeah. <laughs> or her kind words uh, or uh, some kind of rebuke that is it, – it, it stings. And yet to know this person has committed themselves to me for a lifetime, mm. they're for my good. This is a manifestation of God's own action in my life. She is an instrument in the humbler's hand. And uh, that has been a, a very precious thing. So it, it's it's not uh, it's not a coincidence that I dedicated the book to my wife. <laughs> love that, love that. Well done, uh, David Mathis. Again, the author of the new book called "Humbled: Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God." David, before we let you go, let people know where can they find you. Uh, tell them about desiring God, but also where can they find you? Social media, websites, other places. I feel a calling from God to the ministry of Desiring God. I love the ministry of Desiring God. Uh, it was founded in the 1990s before, while I was just a teenager, I had nothing to do with it. John Piper and John Bloom founded the ministry. Uh, it, it's focused on the web, though we also produce books. Um, for most of the history of Desiring God, it has been focused exclusively on the ministry, the preaching, the writing of John Piper. Mm-hmm. And then in these last 10 years, we have added other voices in the same theological stream to flank the voice of, uh, of John Piper. So we'd, we'd love to have you. We call ourselves Christian hedonists. Mm-hmm. That means that we are pursuing our holy joy in God and believe that our pursuit of joy in Him magnifies Him in the way that he ought to be magnified and glorified in our lives. And so I'd love to have you come visit desiringgod.org and, uh, and check out some articles that are fresh daily and books and sermons and other resources. Awesome. And you can also find David at David C. Mathis on Twitter. And let me encourage you again to go get his new book, Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. David, this was great. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Trevin Wax at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, He wrote this. Why suffering pushes us towards or pulls us away from God. The idea being suffering, we never are left the same when we go through suffering. We are never left yeah, the same. It's so true. And, and that there's basically a choice that goes on when yep. we're in the low points of suffering. His point being, it either pushes us towards God or it pulls us away from God. Before we talk about how you even make that choice, Aubrey, talk to us just about that, that, that choice that, that uh, Trevin Wax has set up here. Yeah, I mean, I do think all suffering is sort of this watershed moment where you, you, there does come a time where you're like, okay, am I leaning into the things that I have believed about God my entire life or am I not? It's really where faith becomes faith, right? Where you're Mm -hmm. like, wow, even though I don't see evidence of, of goodness or, or shalom or prayers answered, I'm choosing to believe that God is, God and God is who he says he is. And God is still worthy of my worship, whether or not life went the way that I thought it would be. And it it really is. I I actually think these are some of the marks between immature faith and mature faith where you can say, I, okay, I am not worshiping God for blessings. I'm not worshiping God for benefits. I am not worshiping God for what he's going to do for me. I am worshiping God because God alone is worthy. And it's it that is not easy, but really that is sort of the that's sort of the fighter's prize of faith to say I am I am clinging to the God I love no matter what. And then the beauty of it is on the other side, and there's research done about this. On the other side of suffering is you actually end up having a realer, more intimate faith with God than you ever did before. But unfortunately, a lot of people do walk away because it's so painful. 
Yeah, I there aren't a lot. I've grown up in the church, you know, I've talked about that. There aren't a lot of times where I understand where people just wholeheartedly throw their faith away. Like it yeah. always feels like, yeah, ah, you're making a point or, OK, it's just an intellectual debate. Right, right. Now, right. The problem of evil and, and legitimate suffering, I understand that. Like, totally. I, I think in my mind, I understand why when faced with the loss of a child, the loss oh, of a loved one, yes. like I get why when tragedy strikes, people go, I can't fathom why a good God would let mm-hmm. this happen. But I also understand how that drives people to the feet of Jesus, how right. that drives people to go, you know, what? there's nothing else that can explain this than, um, than the hope that I have in Christ. And, and you see um, that uh, choice being made all of the time. So, I mean, there may be people out there. I know, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it last week, and we don't want to dwell too much on it, but, yeah. you, you know, your family has gone through uh, some real hard times in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks. How yeah. do we, when people face the ultimate tragedies of life, uh, what are the things that cause that decision to be made? How do people end up not throwing away their faith in the midst of just unspeakable tragedy? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we can only really speak from our own experience of suffering to answer that question and then mm. to look to sufferers in scripture. And, I, you know, I always go back to the Psalms of Lament where David was just, I mean, in his own heartache, you know, he lost a child, he mm. lost friends, he lost wars, he lost uh, just like good moods, he was depressed a lot. And in those moments, David would cry out with pure authenticity to God. Darkness is my only companion. God, where mm. are you? You have, even I think of Jeremiah who, who says things like, you have torn me to shreds, God. You have made my paths crooked. There is no light here. I mean, and these are things we're not often taught that it's okay to say to God, but I actually, and I've probably said this before on the show, but I think the reality is the Lord would so much rather you come to him with your anger and your bitterness and your sorrow and your grief and your disbelief and all of those things. He would so much rather you come with all of your ugliness than walk away. Mm. And the beautiful thing about the Lord is that because he suffered for us, because he suffers with us, he is at work somehow sanctifying our suffering. And so I think the one thing we can do to answer your question Pour your heart out to God, even if it feels like, oh, I'm saying things I'm not supposed to say to God, say them anyway. God can take it. And then lean into the faith of those who have gone before us. Read the Psalms, read the laments. They stayed faithful to God. And sometimes we have to borrow other people's faith. Um, And then I, I do think, again, because it's a choice, sometimes you have to just go, God, can you make yourself real to me again? I I almost feel like I don't believe you anymore because you didn't answer that prayer because you didn't stop this thing. Show me that you're real. And then I I would say the last thing is this, Brian, and you kind of hinted at this before, but we also have to remember our future hope. Uh And, And that can be hard, but we have to have the end game in mind that there is a day coming. There is a day coming, friends, when Jesus is going to make all things new and there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more. That is our promise. And we have to keep that end in mind. Oh, it's well put. Uh, Trevin Wax ends this uh, blog this way. Suffering produces sorrow because we know brokenness when we see it. Mm. The tears we shed as we endure suffering may drown us in doubt or they may lead us to the living water. Our only hope to see the broken things restored and the world made new. Suffering is a real thing, and uh, we've got to be able to kind of wrestle with it. I'd encourage you to go check this out at the Gospel Coalition. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We hope you're having a beautiful fall evening. Brian, earlier on in today's show, we talked about a pretty disturbing segment, I suppose you'd call it, on Saturday Night Live, a sketch about Goober the Clown on abortion. And uh, you and I both shared that for us, it was pretty disturbing how flippantly they were talking about abortion. That's right. And then interestingly, yesterday, I don't know if this timing was purposeful or it just happened this way, but Russell Moore over at Christianity Today started talking about the pro-life cause. And he was saying now that this is actually a lower priority for Christians, and that's bad news for everybody. Here's what uh, Russell Moore said. I wanted to share it with you. Human dignity is not an earned right. 
but a signpost to God. I mm. actually think it would have been interesting if he mentioned that Saturday Night Live sketch. Maybe Here's there'll my- be some follow-up articles from that. But ultimately, what Russell Moore talks about is how, of course, we know in less than a month, the Supreme Court's going to take up arguments on the Mississippi case that could conceivably end Roe v. Wade. Um, and at the same time, there are lots of Christians who are not as passionate about this issue. He's calling it, you know, he says his friends who disagree with him about abortion say that he's just involved in a culture war, um, that, you know, he's not caring for women. And right. ultimately, what Russell Moore says is, look, those who are pro-choice care about one person. That's the woman. Those of us who are pro-life are actually caring for two, the women and the children. Did mm-hmm. you get a chance to read this article, Brian? I read through it. I I love Russell Moore. So cards on the table. I know Russell Moore is a bit of a lightning rod for people these days. I am firmly in the camp of uh, if Russell Moore writes it, I'm going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) He has a new uh, podcast out that is phenomenal. Like you and I touched on it the other day. The uh, he just did one with Philip Yancey. Yancey. Right. That was awesome. But I think he touches on something here, Aubrey, that's really important. And that is, I think. Abortion has been um, such a huge topic for evangelicals for so many years. Uh, Let's see how to put this. I think it's losing its cachet a little bit Mm. for people. It's become kind of the old fight. And now we're Mm. on to some people. Some people are on to new fights, whether Mm. it be um, whatever it might be. I think this is true on both sides of the spectrum. And that just can't be. And I appreciate Russell Moore saying that that can't be because how we treat the most vulnerable in this case, the unborn children and the moms who are struggling uh, to make a decision about what they're going to do when they get pregnant. I think this is at the at the heart of um, uh, of what we believe as Christians. Yeah. Right. We believe in the uh, the dignity and the importance of every life. And that's why this can't be an issue that goes back burner. This can't be a, well, now we've got more important things to move on to because a, we can, we can hold up multiple causes as important. Absolutely. That's right. But also be, uh, you know what, if we believe, if we are pro-life and we always say that we're pro-life from womb to the tomb, and now it's become kind of trendy to talk about how Christians don't do a good job uh, with the to the tomb part, right? Yeah. Like for the rest. But that also doesn't mean that now we've eliminated the womb part. Exactly. Like, this is still important. So I, I'm grateful for Russell Moore kind of taking this up and saying, no, this is a, a hugely important thing and it must stay front burner for us. This must remain a hill that we are willing to die on. I think what's interesting is I, I'm hearing people in my life who are kind of quote unquote, over the abortion conversation saying a couple things. One, um, they're not seeing anyone actually doing anything about it. So they don't feel like any change can be made. So therefore, why fight? Mm. And then I would also say, I guess what you're saying, Brian, is I think it's almost become no longer a theological issue in people's minds, but a political issue and people Mm. who... um, who are kind of tired of the political rhetoric feel like they can't take a stand on this anymore. Mm. And I, it is a deeply theological issue, a deeply biblical issue. And we've said on the show before that Christians throughout history were pro-life. So this is not new. This is not just like the moral majority. Like this is actually an issue that's close to the heart of God. And, you know, that's because we believe as Christians that every person was made in the image of God. Amen. And we believe that life starts at conception. And so I I don't know if you, you're a pastor, Brian, if you're, I, I know a lot of pastors aren't talking about abortion from the pulpit these days, but if you were like leading a small group or maybe doing a sermon about abortion, where would you kind of place your biblical anchors so people would begin to think about this in a more theological way? Mm, that's a good question. I would, where you just went, that all people are created in the image of God. Yeah. Um, and then I go back to, the, you know, some of the Old Testament imagery that talks about God creating us in our mother's womb. And I understand how people on the pro-choice side, you know, that's just, you know, imagery or this and that. But it's it's real language there, right? Like yes. God was created. It talks about knowing us, knitting us together in our mm-hmm. mother's womb and knowing us from our first moments. It talks about Jesus being in Mary's womb and John the Baptist and there being some interplay. 
uh, and and that if we believe that God is the creator, th- then we've got to ask, when does God start creating here, right? Is anybody a mistake is another mm. way to think about it. Is anybody a mistake? I think that's where I would I would begin uh, that conversation. How about you? Where Where would you start here? Yeah, I, I I guess I would say the same thing. Like I I just believe wholeheartedly because God took the time to make every single one of us that that every single one of us has dignity mm. and has a purpose. And that, I I think I also, of course, I would tend to say the church needs to get so much better at walking with women, mm-hmm. caring for babies, like doing this communally, so that a woman is not on her own. But I also think I might challenge some women to like think about if they're considering, if they're abortion minded, just to step back and think a little bit differently about um, what what their children might be and do in the world and um, what they might accomplish as mothers. Like, I, I just think sometimes we... I'm very careful about this, but sometimes what I hear on the other side of the argument is women saying they can't succeed Mm. or they couldn't be where they are in life if they hadn't had an abortion. And I actually wonder if there's another way to pose that question, which is like, well, who might you be as a mom? What what Mm. might God shape in you? Who might your child become? And and is there a way to bring um, dignity to that side of the conversation as well? While, of course, remaining compassionate to women who are hurting and struggling and worried and all of those yeah. things. It's certainly complicated, but I don't think that means we step back as Christians. I think we lean in with compassion and lean in on the side of being pro-life um, mm. as much as is possible as part of who we are as Christians. And I think it's going to become harder in our culture to hold a pro-life view yeah, as I these things too. start going through the courts. Uh, and so I also think that's why it becomes back burner for people because we don't want to uh, ruffle feathers, but also we don't want to be seen as kind of the rest of the political party that we may not agree with. Right. But you got to be able to say, hey, I could separate these two. And you made an interesting point before, too, about people saying, has any of it really made a difference? I think statistics are on our side. Mm-hmm. And I think we can point people to groups like Preborn that we've yep. had on here and other That's people right. go, no, no. A, there, there are groups making a huge difference. Uh, B, laws matter. That yes. Texas law, regardless of what you think about the legality of it, is making a difference yes, in Texas right yep. now. Abortions have been cut by 50 percent. Mm-hmm. And I would also say, see, Aubrey, we could talk about the Christians um, uh, adoption rate, like the adoption rate within people are always like, well, then all the Christians should adopt the babies. In reality, the statistics tell us the Christians are adopting the babies That's at a right. much higher rate than other people. So I think we can point to things and go. No, no, no. There is progress being made. This isn't just um, just bluster, just people yelling. This isn't just a theoretical debate. But in reality, people, uh, uh, Jesus followers are putting their money where their mouth is and making a difference and seeing babies being born uh, and being loved. And, and we are doing things that are making a difference. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good that's a good reminder, Brian, for all of us. Thank you for reminding us of that. Well, okay. We started the show by talking about something negative about Saturday Night Live. When we come back, we're gonna talk about something fun that was on Saturday Night Live. So stick around for that. You're listening to the common good on AM eleven sixty, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And one of our favorite ways to end every show is by giving you something that's just fun or lighthearted or inspiring. And when we started out today's show, we talked about a really disturbing uh, sketch that was on Saturday Night Live. But there was another sketch on Saturday Night Live, Brian. I don't know if you got a chance to see it. but I it did was- not. Okay. It was hilarious. So one of the uh, t- the cast members on Saturday Night Live does a regular Dion Warwick talk show where she pretends <laughs> to be the, you know, sort of icon Dion Warwick and basically interviews people about it like it's hilarious. I'll just say that. Watch it sometime when you can. But on Saturday night, the actual Dion Warwick showed up on the show and it was so Hilarious. I want to play some of that audio for our listeners. I'm tired of interviewing people who are not icons. Please welcome me. I'm so excited for you that I'm here. 
you something. Dion, why are you perfect? <laughs> Darling, I'm not perfect. I'm just very, very good. <laughs> you know, today I heard a song by an artist called Young Boy Never Broke Again. Mm. Why aren't people just called Burt Bacharach anymore? <laughs> Well, you know, that is an excellent question, and I don't know the answer, but I will keep tweeting until I find out. <laughs> okay, so I don't exactly know why I loved it, but something about this living <laughs> legend. She was hilarious. She was, like, on cue. Then she sang, and there was something just really, really fun. And, I mean, I had a massive smile on my face seeing the 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 real Dionne Warwick alongside the, you know, pretend yeah. Dionne Warwick singing together and laughing and making jokes. It was really cool. There's something about Saturday Night Live at its best when people, the actual stars come on and interact with the people who are impersonating them, right? right like there they, is something so awesome about that. And I think one of the things that's great about it is, uh, you know, you can think of presidents who've done it. I remember famously Hillary Clinton coming, or no, Sarah Palin coming on with oh, Tina Oh, that's Fey. right, with Tina Fey, yep. Uh, you know, I think Nicolas Cage came on because uh-huh. they used to mock Nicolas Cage. Andy Samberg did. There's a list of them. I, I think what we love about that, what I love about that is people, even celebrity, well-known people who can laugh at themselves. Because generally, when Saturday Night Live takes you on as like an impersonation, they're not doing it always to throw you bouquets, right? They're often <laughs> doing it. Definitely not, right. They're mocking you. They are uh, poking fun. Yeah. And sometimes people who are famous take that way too seriously. Uh-huh, like they get, totally. how dare somebody. But I think when you see people um, kind of going along with the bit, that's awesome. And I think that that filters down to something, you know, we like to make connections to these stories. What's Mm -hmm. the connection? I think the connection is don't take yourself so seriously. Be self-deprecating. You know, I think one of the things you and I like to do on the show and off the show is kind of mock when we mess things up. Kind of laugh a little bit. And and so I think sometimes I just feel like our culture, we take take ourselves – way too seriously like everything i post is supposed to be life-changing everything i preach is supposed to Mm. save the world and let's just like uh turn up the humor meter a little bit where we Mm. go you know what sometimes i mess up and people are going to talk about it but they're really going to laugh about it when i'm able to laugh about it so i guess one of the things i think the reason you love it is she's going i don't take myself too seriously i know that there's things about me to mock yeah, I th- I think I really did like that. And I also there was something also that was I mean it was a it was funny, but there was also something a little bit powerful about like uh the generations being together and this really is a living legend, Dion Warwick and and then I I don't know. It was it was pretty moving, but I think that's a good word for all of us. Don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, I even for me I tend on on social media to be very like thoughtful and inspiring but I I do you know it is good to just laugh at yourself and remind other people and remind yourself that you're human and that you make mistakes and foibles and you know I, I, yeah I like that I think that's a good that's a good lesson for all of us Brian mm-hmm. okay let me tell you one other funny thing about Saturday night live and then we have another story to move on to but so the host of Saturday night live uh, this weekend was Kieran Culkin Okay. Do you, do you recognize that last name when I say it? I mean, is it Macaulay Culkin's brother? Yes. So this okay. is Macaulay Culkin's younger brother. And he started out the show by saying that he was actually on stage 30 years ago when his brother Mac, he called him, Macaulay Culkin hosted Saturday Night Live. So they showed a video of Macaulay Culkin as, you know, the Home Alone star, right? That age hosting Saturday Night Live and there's the little Kieran Culkin like on the side of the stage cheering his brother on and here he is 30 years later hosting his own night on Saturday Night Live that was pretty cool too that was another sort of full circle nostalgia moment right right yeah Macaulay Culkin and a brother yeah isn't that crazy it's it's hard to think of Macaulay Culkin and everybody from them not and not in terms of like they're 10 years old. They're five years old. Speaking of which, Aubrey, speaking of nostalgia, show, we'll talk about this another day. Showed my kids Back to the Future this weekend. <gasps> and what'd they think? They liked it. it. The movie holds up. It was pretty yeah, good. I enjoyed it. That's a good we'll have to We'll have to show our kids that. That's a pretty good one. We've done like Ghostbusters and some of the mm. other ones, but that one would be good. Okay, Brian, there's another story that I want to share before we end the, sh- end the show today. It's a story about a town in Canada that's known for its polar bears. 
Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I was looking at this. You you showed us this from the New York Times. Uh, Churchill, Manitoba, uh, they've only been known for polar bears. It's that cold and that snowy up there. They're the polar bear capital of the world. But now, let's not politicize this too much, but now with uh, climate change, mm-hmm. what's happening in their specific town, uh, a lot of the stuff is melting. The polar bears are going away. And so they're they're kind of grieving the loss of the polar bears. But at the same time, they're going Okay, what are we going to do now? And now they're kind of becoming kind of the grain capital of that area of of Canada. Uh, It says minerals will be mined from its thawing northern expanses. Like basically they're going, okay, how do we pivot? What were we as a small town? What are we now? So, A, Aubrey, the fact that they were known for polar bears is kind of crazy. Can you imagine living in a spot where it was just kind of like lots of polar bears? No, in fact, I was reading that article, and it was like a picture of one of the kids trick-or-treating, and it was like, parents walk beside trick-or-treaters with guns in case of polar bears. But then they all just love the polar bears, too. So I feel like it's a little like Hallmark movie Christmas Town or something. Yeah, but now there's also something to be said about them just pivoting, going, okay, uh, we can just hang our heads that this is, you know, woe is us, or we can kind of move on and move forward. And it's kind of uh, interesting to see that they're able to do that. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so those are the two good words for us today. Don't take yourself too seriously. Be able to laugh at yourself. And then uh, hopefully with the Lord at your back, you could pivot and move on when things are hard. Hey, I just like I just like preach those two articles. What do you think? I you very pastoral of you. And I know that uh, you have a lot going on this week between school and uh, technology not working for you that <laughs> take some time to laugh, Aubrey, right? Take I some time to, to laugh and take uh... a deep breath. And if you are really struggling, look out your window and pretend that there are just polar bears roaming okay. West Chicago. All right. <laughs> I, like it. I like it. Well, thanks so much for joining us, everybody, today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m., For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.